Welcome to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koval Anderson. Welcome to my happy place, my podcast where I self-medicate against my constant overthinking and anxiety about my own mortality with tiny happy pills of positivity and reflection. Number 82, books. Curl up with a good book. That expression speaks volumes. It's not sit down with a good book. It's curl up. Get cozy. Get ready to immerse yourself in other worlds populated by fantastic characters and their stories. I debated with myself about calling this segment books, reading, or reading books. The book is the thing. Reading is the gateway activity to all those other worlds, to knowledge, to enlightenment. I just think that if you say books, a lot more imagery and association appear in our heads. And it all leads us to reading. I wish I could remember that aha moment of learning to read as a child, like I did when I learned how to ride a bike. But I can't. I do remember the fascination, though, with reading and the worlds that I withdrew into. Oh, so many worlds. I started a spreadsheet, (laughs) you knew I would, where I tried to calculate and estimate how many books I've read in my life, but I gave up. There's simply no way. I had a regular pilgrimage route from a young age, going downtown to the main library. Hours were spent there each and every time, dropping off books and checking new ones out all the browsing the shelves in between, panicking on occasion about remembering to drop off books in order to avoid overdue fees. I have read a lot in my life, and I still do, although less lately. For some reason, I read really fast, so fast that some stranger in my life at some point said accusingly after watching me read, you're not even reading that. You're just pretending to read so you look clever. Yeah, right. But okay, let's get into this. Let's get the controversy out of the way, right out of the gates. I do not keep books. I don't have a huge library in my home with entire walls filled with the volumes I have consumed. I just wandered over to the one bookshelf in my living room, and I counted 61 books. 17 of those are copies of books that I've published myself. So, 44 in total. But then again, five of them are old atlases that I've been collecting. That total number is higher than normal. I need to purge. I get it why people like to have books on shelves. It's timelessly aesthetic. So much so that you can buy fake books on the internet to fill out your shelves. Color-coded even. Check it out. It's really weird. I enjoy walking straight over to a person's shelves in their home for the first time to see what they've read. It's an indicator. I just feel that a book shouldn't be relegated to the shelf. It should be in circulation. The words should be shared as much as possible. I give books away to friends if I can. For many years, when I amassed a certain number at home, I would go down to my local library and donate them, keeping my bookshelf trim and tidy. And allow me to invoke Mr. Henry Miller. He said, A book lying idle on a shelf is wasted ammunition. Like money, books must be kept in constant circulation. 
A book is not only a friend, it makes friends for you. When you've possessed a book with mind and spirit, you are enriched. But when you pass it on, you are enriched threefold. Keep books or redistribute them. I've discussed this with many people, and it's often an agree-to-disagree topic. This next one is rarely that. It is a contentious issue. For me, a book is a tool and a conduit. It's a physical possession. I have absolutely no problem bending the corner to mark where I'm at if I don't have a bookmark. I've had people, strangers, react in horror when seeing me do that. Huh, but I don't care. A book is organic, and leaving marks shows that the book was used and was useful. I also have a system for marking passages that I want to remember and find later. It involves bending the corner, but just a small bend, different than marking a page. If I have a bend at the top and there is something else farther down the page, I'll bend the bottom corner too. Add to that my habit of marking the passage in question by running a sharp fingernail across it, creating an indented line on the paper. It's very efficient. Later, I can often remember roughly where in a book the passage that I'm looking for is. Always in the first third, somewhere around the middle, etc. I can find them quickly with this technique. I prefer softcover books because I'm also happy to fold it backwards so I can hold it in one hand. I wonder how many of you are shaking your heads in despair right now. Boy, I have had some heated discussions about this topic in my time. I get it, in a way. A person who reveres books and regards them as objects of desire or design objects, oh, they want to preserve their structural and aesthetic purity. But I get it less than I get wanting to keep like a million books on a shelf. I've never been able to get into electronic books like Kindle. Part of this is that Kindles were never really popular on the market here where I am, much more in North America. I could probably train myself, but then, you know what, I'm in no hurry. I prefer buying books. The feel of them, the smell, the graphic design of the cover, the sensation when you turn a page because you're, you're in a hurry to follow the story, or seeing the book on the table and picking it up with expectation, getting back to the book, or putting it down on the table because you either need to digest what you've just read or you reluctantly have to do something else. In one of my journals from way back, I wrote down this quote by the famous Scottish writer James M. Barrie of Peter Pan fame. For several days after my first book was published, I carried it about in my pocket and took secret peeps at it to make sure that the ink had not faded. I never forget that quote. When I was in the film industry and finishing a screenplay, I would print out the screenplay, and then I would take it out drinking. Later, when I started publishing books, more drinking sessions. I love Barry's childlike fascination and thrill at having published a book and carrying it around for a few days. A drinking session with the book is not exactly the same thing, but it's the same vibe. Giddy, thrilled, excited, proud. When newspapers moved online, I still insisted on the experience of reading the paper version. Again, the feeling of the paper, the ink on the fingers, the smell of the paper and the ink, as well as the wonderful clumsiness of trying to turn a page and fold the newspaper into a more compact, readable form. Although I don't bother much anymore. I got over that, and I read my news online, so I would probably make the switch to an electronic apparatus quite easily. But again, I am not in a hurry. Audiobooks. Yeah, not my thing. I've probably talked somewhere in this podcast about how I don't listen to music much and only podcasts once in a while. 
I get claustrophobic if I can't overhear conversations or hear everything around me. So this will never be a thing for me. But hey, people are experiencing books, which is great. I can't complain about that. Storytelling is underway. Fantastic. I just kind of lament the fact that they aren't reading printed words, not experiencing seeing small ink symbols formed into sentences to communicate ideas and emotions and then have all that interpretation zip up to the brain for digestion and understanding. So I'm kind of on the fence about this one. Fun urbanism fact. Car-centric countries like the United States are the biggest consumers of audiobooks and listeners of podcasts simply because they're stuck in cars for so long each day. Podcast listening plummeted by 20% during the pandemic because so many people were suddenly working from home. But yeah, if you can get a book injected into your brain via your ears while you're commuting by car, go for it. I don't keep books around, but rest assured, I do have some books that linger longer. I'm researching for a TV series I want to make, so I have a bunch of relevant books to that, with bent corners and fingernail marks, and that books that I need for just a while longer. I have, like I said, my own books that I've published in various language editions. Then there are the books that are permanent, that I can never give away. Old Cicero doesn't need to turn in his grave after having said 2,000 years ago, a room without books is like a body without a soul. So, what do I have? Right. Susan Sontag's On Photography is the book I've read the most in my life. I read it once a year, and that's been going on for 20 years or more. That book is so completely dog-eared with loose pages. Ah, I love it. The Secret Language of Film by the French screenwriter Jean-Claude Carrière is another one I've read many times. His philosophies about the evolution of cinema and storytelling. The Garden of Eden by Ernest Hemingway, published after his death. So brilliant. If anyone spouts off all the cliches about Hemingway being a macho writer, recommend this book with its beautiful androgynous characters, reversal of gender roles, and wonderful gender fluidity. Then there's Babetta's Feast by Karen Blixen in Danish. Aldous Huxley's Brave New World. Either Or by Søren Kierkegaard and his biography called S.A.K., His Initials. Another book is Maps of the Imagination, The Writer as Cartographer by Peter Turchi. And finally, a simple book about the history of an island on the west coast of Canada where my sister lived for decades and where I spent many summers as a teen, Texada. Also, the name of the book, published in 1960, completely out of print, a slim volume with a mustard-colored cover. Yeah, that's it. The complete Colville Anderson permanent collection. I remember a couple of other books that I acquired when I was young and that followed me around for decades. The Dictionary of Symbols was just, you won't be surprised to learn, a visual dictionary of all manner of symbols from around the world with their meanings. I was fascinated every time I leafed through it. Later in life, I used it for graphic design inspiration. The other was a dictionary of word origins. I have always geeked out on etymology. You probably figured that out by now listening to this podcast, tracing the history of words in various languages. They were donated to a library a couple of years ago. The internet is a far greater resource for those two topics. But you know what? It was really hard giving away books that I've had in my possession for more than 35 years. Here in Europe, it is common to cross a border to shop in a cheaper country. Usually, it's food and alcohol or medical services like a dentist. 
For years, I would make a biannual pilgrimage to Malmo in Sweden, which used to be a 30-minute ferry ride from Copenhagen. Now there's a train crossing a bridge. And more specifically, a bookshop in Malmo. The exchange rate is always great, so I was saving money. But I seem to recall that Sweden didn't have VAT, value-added tax, on books, so saving an extra 25% was incredibly attractive. It always felt cool and adventurous, taking a ferry across the sea to another land to acquire books. Some countries make an effort to provide easier access to books, like removing the VAT on them. In Brazil, I saw that they have many vending machines in public that only sell books. Haven't seen that in many other places at all. Since the full invasion in Ukraine, bookshops that also sell coffee are enjoying a renaissance. I enjoy all the poetry of that. And man, yeah, now I'm thinking about bookshops. Off track. Another form of temple in my life, like cinemas. The legendary Shakespeare and Company in Paris is a favorite. Or actually, it used to be. Now there is a long line of tourists waiting to get in. Along the River Seine, small booths selling used and antiquarian books have operated since the 16th century. The booksellers are called bouquinistes. Now a lot of them sell kitsch tourist goods, but let's stick with the poetry. The banks of one of the world's great rivers are lined with books. What's not to like? I have bookshops in various cities that I've been popping into for years if I'm around. Even if I don't buy anything every single time, it just feels like, you know, I should pay a visit. Now there's a movement called Little Free Libraries, littlefreelibrary.org, where people build small covered boxes and place them on private property next to a sidewalk or even in public space. Anyone can add books or take them. Add to that the impromptu free libraries in converted phone booths like I've seen in Sweden. It may not be a golden age for books, but it's really hard to imagine them disappearing, isn't it? I am not a big fan of monotheistic organized religion. But here's a story relevant to humans learning to read. Martin Luther famously hammered his 95 theses to the door of a church in Wittenberg, Germany on October 31st, 1517, and started the rebellion against the Catholic Church and launched the Protestant Reformation. He wrote his theses in the language of the church, Latin, but his friends quickly translated them into German, and thanks to Gutenberg and his printing press, which was invented in 1440, they distributed them widely. Normally, messing with the all-powerful church like Luther did back then was a pretty fast and direct route to getting executed. The widespread distribution, however, and the popular support the ideas gained staved off any attempt to arrest and execute Luther. There were reformers who predated Luther by 100, 150 years and who said a lot of the same things, but they lacked media distribution. Printed words and reading were a powerful tool for Luther and his ideas. As Margaret Atwood would say centuries later, a word after a word after a word is power. The movable type printing press from the previous century launched the printing revolution, enabling the fast and wide distribution of ideas. The Catholic Church initially supported the invention, simply because their authority was unchallenged. Most people were illiterate, so it didn't matter. And printing their book, the Bible, in large numbers for priests to take to the expanding colonial world, yeah, that was good marketing. 
but the burgeoning Protestant revolution also saw value in this. Their heretical texts were printed and distributed fast and furious, and they were a threat to the church. So the church started to crack down on them, but it was a bit too late. All of these books, pamphlets, and general texts were usually read aloud by a literate person on a town square or something like that. The illiterate majority would listen to them. But here is what is wild. Up until the 17th century, the written word was considered to be a hearable sign. It was meant to be heard. People would mutter to themselves while reading, or they would read aloud to others. Silent reading was something fancy scholars engaged in, or it was a devotional technique. Even Luther, in his time, wanted his texts distributed, but also read aloud. Here's a quote. Faith came by hearing. The ear, not the eye, was the Christian sense. That's what St. Paul said. Basically, the earliest audiobooks in the world. In 1529, Luther published two works important to his movement. The Large Catechism, which was the grand summary of this new direction in religion, was the big one. In it, Luther insisted that, Therefore, it is the duty of every father of a family to question and examine his children and servants at least once a week and to ascertain what they know of this catechism or are learning and, if they do not know it, to keep them faithfully at it. But then he adds, However, it is not enough for them to comprehend and recite these parts according to the words only, but the young people should also be made to attend the preaching, especially during the time which is devoted to the catechism that they may hear it explained and may learn to understand what every part contains so as to be able to recite it as they have heard it and, when asked, may give a correct answer so that the preaching may not be without profit and fruit. Sure, religion is a control mechanism and you need a subservient population who buy into all of your fun ideas. But Luther and the Lutheran doctrine was also a departure from the standard approach of the church up until then. Keep the population stupid and uneducated. Let the priests and the other religious dudes tell you about the word of God. But Luther wanted to democratize his religion and have it exposed to as many people as possible. Not just the priests, but getting it right into the family and letting them take part. At its core, Lutheranism is about equality, erasing the boundaries between the bossy church and the citizens. Okay, let's move north to Denmark. Lutheranism was spreading fast in Northern Europe. King Christian III made it the official religion in Denmark in 1536 and cut ties with Rome. The challenge was to get everyone not only on board with it, but also to understand what this new religion was all about. All the texts had to be translated into Danish. This was because here, emphasis was placed on the desire for individuals to be able to acquire Christianity themselves. And this was to be done by reading the doctrines and the Bible in Danish, the mother tongue. Learning how to read suddenly became a valuable skill that was the key to the success of this new religion. The problem was widespread illiteracy. So it was decreed that the clerk at all churches in the country, they were now tasked with teaching children and young people, or anyone else who wanted, how to read. Think about it. In that age, a king and his adopted religion actually wanting the population to learn how to read, <laughs> that was incredibly rare. This had a massive impact on education and the development of the school system later in Denmark. Also, as a social leveler and adhesive, 
because both boys and girls, women and men, rich and poor, all had to be able to read. Again, unusually democratic for that era. So, not a fan of religion, but I like how religion, in this case, led to the widespread literacy of an entire nation, and later, it can be argued, to the development of a very secular nation, the one I live in today. Because once you can read, you can read whatever you want. As Frederick Douglass wrote, once you learn to read, you will be forever free. I cringe a little bit when I hear myself say, do you read books? To someone I'm talking to about a book and I want to recommend it. But I sometimes ask, yeah, do you read books? That's how things are these days. It's no secret that with all the other content on offer in this digital age, reading books is going through a bit of a rough patch. But as an extension of that, I have noticed a pattern which is interesting. I almost always have a book with me when I go out to a cafe, both here at home or abroad. At my local wine bar, if I don't have anyone specific to meet, I might run into some of the other locals and chat with them. But I might not, so I have a book to read. And here's the pattern. In many situations, in many countries, someone at the next table will lean over to me and say, uh, Excuse me, what are you reading? Every time I get the vibe that sitting there at a bar or a cafe table with a book is, these days, a bit of a novel thing to do. Novel thing. See what I did there? Sometimes I can see that my answer, the title of the book and a brief summary of it, isn't interesting to the person. Their, what are you reading, was actually code for, huh, wow, cool, you're reading. One Friday evening at my local wine bar, there was nobody to play with, so I sat there reading a book but also eavesdropping and people watching. A woman next to me, she turned and just suddenly said, how do you do that? She meant reading a book in a noisy, crowded bar. Just practice, I guess, was my reply. She just thought it was wild and impressive. I had a book with me all day in Barcelona once, and I ended up meeting friends and making a night of it. In a cocktail bar at three in the morning, I came back from the bathroom and a young guy was leaning against my bar stool in the crowded place. And I just said, hey, sorry, dude, that's my seat. And he just says, oh, no problem. But is that your book? This 20-something German guy pointed at the table. I was reading 21 Lessons for the 21st Century. Yep, that's mine. And he says, oh, man, I'm reading it too. What do you think? And off we went on a 30-minute talk about this book. So cool. It often leads to conversation about the book or other stuff when someone leans over and starts the dialogue. Now I do the same when I see somebody else reading in public. Okay, not every single time. If they're clearly engrossed in the book, I leave them alone. Then it's just often pleasant to watch them read. The American writer Paul Theroux once described sitting on a train and watching a woman across from him reading one of his books. He was already an established writer, but he was nonetheless completely consumed by watching her, trying to gauge where she was in the story and studying her facial expressions. Was that a little smile? What words did she just read? Oh, he wanted so badly to talk to her, but he was also content with the mystery. We read to know we are not alone. C.S. Lewis But now I've learned that just the physical presence of a book on a table at a cafe brings people together. Can't be a bad thing. Although, in this modern age, I have to go with Haruki Murakami on this one. He said this, Have books happened to you? Unless your answer to that question is yes, I'm unsure how to talk to you. 
You've been listening to 100 Things I'll Miss When I'm Dead. I'm Michael Koble-Anderson. Thanks for being out there.